Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I'm so excited for today's incredible panel. Returning to the roundup is the fantastic, the fabulous Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks for being here in studio. It's so fun to be here with you, Ron. Also returning to the roundup is politicology favorite Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics. My fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project, he also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. And we are going to make very good use of that expertise in our plus segment today. Mike, what did you have for breakfast? At numbers, it's numbers season. <laughs> Also, returning to the roundup and joining us today from Lithuania is Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many, many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent, excellent newsletter I cannot recommend enough called greatpower.us. She's been writing some absolute fire there this week. Molly, it's great to see you again. I know your time is limited today, so thank you for sharing some of it with us. Thanks for having me on. On this week's Roundup, we'll look at the continued response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it can mean domestically, especially the impact on gas prices and oil imports, how Chinese state media is pushing Russian propaganda on Facebook and how we should think about our relationship with China moving forward. And then when we move over to Politicology Plus, we're going to take a look at one of the biggest and least understood voter demographics and the seismic shift that top-level strategists are still missing. Politicology Plus is a private ad-free version of the podcast with additional episodes and discussions and strategy sessions you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, just navigate to Politicology in the app and you can try it for free with a simple double click on your iPhone. Or you can head over to politicology.com slash plus for more info and to get in for 30% off. Let's dig in. The ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine has dominated the news over the last week. On Tuesday night, President Joe Biden announced a ban on Russian energy imports in the U.S. That includes oil, natural gas, and coal imports. This is another round of economic sanctions against Russia aimed at ending the invasion of Ukraine that started over two weeks ago. Up until last week, top officials in the U.S. and Europe signaled they wouldn't sanction Russian oil and gas uh, because of the likelihood of a spike in gas prices, according to CNN. Recently, Ukraine's President Zelensky and members of Congress on both sides of the aisle had been urging Biden to initiate the ban, and it does look like the U.S. is moving unilaterally on this, since EU countries are more reliant on Russian oil than the U.S. But the U.K. has also announced that it's planning to phase out Russian oil imports by the end of the year. But not as much of our oil comes from Russia as you might think. According to CNN, U.S. imports from Russia accounted for only about 8% of the energy portfolio in 2021, with only 3% of it being crude oil. In his announcement, Biden did say the move was likely to lead to higher costs for Americans. He even called it Putin's price hike. Uh, I wonder if he got the memo about my um, gas pump stickers. 
at least right now, Americans support the ban on Russian oil. A new Quinnipiac poll found that 71% of Americans would support a ban on Russian oil, even when told it would increase the cost of gasoline. And that includes 66% of Republicans and 70% of independents. So Molly, I know we've got limited time with you. You're going to have to hop off uh, early today. So why don't you lead off here and tell us how you're thinking about all of the ramifications of the ban, whether they're economic or security or political, and then we'll open it up from there. Yeah. So I think, uh, look, I mean, any any of these punitive steps that are being taken, particularly ones that are going to squeeze Russian revenue streams, uh, are important. Uh, I think it is important that as many of these be taken and enacted uh, together as quickly as possible. Uh, because you kind of want uh, a form of economic terror against uh, the Russian state right now. And there's just no other way to, to phrase it than that. Um, so all of these things are positive. And it's good that consumers understand there will be a price to be paid for this. And there's really no way around that one way or the other. I mean, this will disrupt things no matter what. So we may as well get some credit for doing something good by doing it. Um, all of that is fine. Uh, the problem is it's all still in this, but we're punishing them for what they've done category. And right now they're sort of the abstract, well, it will eventually make them stop fighting concept, but it is not, uh, for me, it is not enough in terms of what are you doing to actually protect Ukrainians. And I think that's the thing that's been missing. There was like this beautiful snapshot of it, you know, during uh, the State of the Union address uh, where where there was a, a somewhat significant section on Ukraine, um, uh, which was unfortunate in its ending, in my view, but the State Department puts out a tweet to highlight that section of the speech. And it was like, we told you it was going to happen. It happened exactly the way we said. And now we're making Russia pay the price. It's like, what about step Mm. three, which is having them not kill Ukrainians? And um, I feel like that's the space where we're still not seeing enough, enough creativity, enough mobilization, all the stuff within NATO. Great. All the punitive stuff. Great. Like, why can't we bring any of that energy and creativity to how we are actually helping Ukraine? So what opportunities, uh, Mike, do you think this presents to reframe how the American people and people across the world, for that matter, think about clean and renewable energy? Well, I think the opportunity to kind of recast it as, as essentially a weapon of war, right, or being part of this broader cause is formidable. Um, I, I in thinking about this over the past two weeks, I also remember being seven or eight years old, (laughs) you know, hearing the same messages and policymakers weren't, weren't too, uh, too uh, in tune with that or able to kind of pick that mantle up and run. But I think we're at a different point in in time here and there's nothing that moves public opinion like an impact to them uh, personally, financially, and economically. So if we do end up in this sort of sustained longer term um, trajectory of of what for Americans anyway is very high gas prices, and it does start to have an economic impact, not just in the broader economy, but at the kitchen table, I think you can start to see um, behaviors change. And and look, we are in a a kind of a unique moment, um, at least in, in the past 20 years unique where there is sort of this rally around the flag effect that we have not seen since 9-11. And as we all know, that that, that effect did not last terribly long. Um, I'm not convinced at all that this will last very long. I think it's a unique window. Um, I've said it before on this podcast. I think that the Biden administration and the Democrats need to, to adjust 
accordingly and start moving offensively and take advantage of that. There's obviously bigger considerations than domestic politics, but that's not my expertise. Where I focus on is the domestic political situation, and they would be remiss if they did not advance into this, this wide chasm. Republicans, the average Republican voter, has a negative view of Russia. They're, they're supportive of Ukraine, and that window is not going to last very long. Once the Fox News machine and the right-wing media find some sort of stumble, which is, of course, going to happen in a conflict like this, and they will seize that opportunity. So right now is the time to start messaging into this um, aggressively, um, take the opportunity. I think Molly would argue that it's more than just messaging, and I would agree with her. They need to act in a more direct, forthright, um, um, and, and, and forward-thinking manner. That's, that is what the potential here is. That's where the, the, the political promise and opportunity is, especially coming off the heels of say what you will about it, the Afghanistan withdrawal. The optics of it were not good. It certainly hurt Biden uh, deeply. It wounded him politically deeply, deeply. He's never recovered from the image of what that has meant. Um, and, and by that, I mean this weakness, this feebleness, this lack of leadership, this incompetence. This is an opportunity to recast that. And if they don't take advantage of that, um, then, then they're, they will probably never recover from it because politically anyway, this is kind of manna from heaven. It's a great opportunity. Ron, if I could just weigh in on one thing Mike said that I think yeah. is really important in terms of this, it's, there's this window and it's super unique. And I think particularly people who are on the let's just wait and see what happens side here uh, should understand it is a limited window. And I think a really important aspect of this on the we can stop Russia with financial measures side is right now there's this incredible thing happening where industry is sort of self-sanctioning. People are breaking deals with Russia. They're pulling out of Russia. Uh, they're cutting off very significant financial flows to Russia uh, on their own, like outside of, of what they would be legally required to do, partially for reputational risk, partially for other reasons. Um, but that does not happen very often and it will not be sustainable. Many of those companies in a few months are going to be looking for a way to open doors again if they feel like there's not going to be a change in the situation. Um, so I think it, there is this sort of window of time in which there is opportunity to actually crush the regime of Vladimir Putin in multiple domains of war. And we need to take advantage of it. Uh, and if we don't, then it's on us. Well, I mean, I would say that the the rally the round the flag moment that Mike is talking about is in a way it's here, in a way it's not. It's here for rank and file voters and rank and file Republicans, and it's very much not here for the uh, talker class on the right. Their unwillingness to rally around the flag and their unwillingness to have that kind of nine eleven moment of we're all in it together is really, really showing. Um, you know, I think that the way that they have decided to use this moment to take a stand against getting to clean energy, of getting off of fossil fuels, is disgusting. It's intellectually dishonest. It's manipulative of American voters. And it also is doing nothing to, to at all uh, alleviate the pain of, say, the the proverbial suburban mom, right, who's feeling the pinch at the gas tank. Um, and, and so the question is, and, and, you know, I'm sure that Mike and Molly are both thinking about this. How do we get to a point where we either the, I think for the Biden administration tamp down the, those talking points. And, and I have to say that, although I think that the American people are with Biden, 
um, on this issue. The Biden administration this week has been playing defense instead of offense. And they, I think, are completely missing the mark in how they're talking about this stuff. So how do we move those columns, shift them such that we are putting the Tucker Carlson, Fox News types of the world back in on defense to say, you did this. You are the enablers of Putin. You, This is Putin's fault. And domestically, this is your fault. You are the people who have been facilitating this madman. And it is now, there are consequences of, of coziness with authoritarians. And we are now downstream of that. So I don't know. I mean, that's, that's I think, uh, Molly's expertise. How do we shift that that narrative. Yeah, Molly, I, 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 yeah, I'd love for you to speak to this because it goes back to, we've had this conversation, we've had this piece of the conversation a couple of times and I'd love for you to, like, this goes to the big why question for me. Like the big, the big, deep, like resonant why. Why should people care? And, and, and the way that Ukrainians are forcing Americans to look in the mirror and ask who we are and what we stand for. And, the, and, and I think, what Lucy's talking about is how the the Republican talking class are exploiting the lack of an answer to why. They are definitely uh, trying to align the changed reality of the universe to their tired 30-year-old binder of talking points um, in a way that I think everybody kind of doesn't really care about right now. I think it's so fascinating uh, part of what Mike and Lucy raised, which is like the Republican voters are are normal on this, right? Like they are very closely aligned and a bipartisan. 66% yeah. support this ban. Just, yeah. And on views of Russia, on views of Ukraine, it's not just about energy right. prices. Um, and I think what's so interesting to me here is, and not unusual in the kind of how you discuss disinformation sense, you know, we always joke every country that cares about Russian disinformation things, it's like way easier to talk about the campaigns that are happening in somebody else's country than in your own, right? Because then you have to confront all of your own hideous weaknesses and, and faults. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's a somewhat similar thing here where nobody wants to look at events that have occurred in our domestic political landscape and have one of those, holy shit, this is a bridge too far moments. But I think for normal people, they're looking at this and they're like, hey, this is morally uh, completely reprehensible and we don't want to associate with that and we should be on the other side of that. And this is black and white and Americans are on the side of the white and that's where we go. And um, it's so fascinating to me that like this was the thing that kind of broke through the unbreakable, yeah. completely bipartisan split polling for the last five years. Um, and any what, what's also amazing to me is zero political leaders on either side have tried to capture that and understand what it means that uh, this thing that I rant about all the time, that leadership matters, that the United States of America has to have more than just words to say about the century battle between uh, authoritarianism and democracies, whatever democracies need to evolve to and become in this new era um, that is underway. I mean, that battle is in Ukraine. And if we are really going to sit there and watch it happen and not try to pick a side, uh, then the consequences to that are on us. Uh, and for the rest of the century, it will be a lot harder to achieve the things that we say are important to us. And there's just no way around so it. So you, you recently laid out the very clear opportunity, and I'm just going to plug the newsletter one more time, greatpower.us, because uh, recently this series that you're working on, I think is just one of the best pieces of writing on Ukraine that I've seen yet. And uh, I, if you had a, an elevator ride, what would the pitch be for the opportunity 
that presents itself right now that people seem to be missing? What is, what is the opportunity? And maybe it's a very tall building, but what's the elevator? What's the elevator pitch, Molly? <laughs> well, I think, and I will be brief, but there's the opportunity and there's the risks we're not seeing, right? The risk everybody is focused on is immediate escalation with Russia and trying to avoid this in this like nonsensical, everything equals thermonuclear war, you know, scenario. Um, but I think that the, the opportunity, which the Ukrainians have done such a poetic job of trying to show us. And you see it even now as they are fighting a war, they're also fighting an information war within Russia to show Russians what is going on, to show them they don't need to live this way. They're doing that with information operations and other activities. They're doing that with everything they do and how they're interacting with Russian soldiers, with POWs, with the humane treatment, uh, reaching out to the parents of detained soldiers to try to get them home. Uh, everything they have done is to show us that if we help Ukraine win, there is a better future for us with Russia, in Russia itself, uh, with Ukraine as sort of a new regional power that's helping to bridge the gap between the West and Russia that we've had for just too long. And the Ukrainians can fill that because they have the cultural experience, the language skills, they know each other, it's cousins. You know, We're like way over here, we don't get it. The Russians feel misjudged and isolated from us, but that's not the same dynamic with Ukraine. So the Ukrainians are showing us this tremendous opportunity if you defeat Putin, period. It's not about the Russian people. It's about defeating Putin. Um, and they've laid that out in a really critical way. And I think our leadership in the United States does not see this in the way that some of the European leaders do. I think, um, as I noted in, in some of the writing, there's been this sort of seismic shift in Europe in a way that all of us that have been frustrated with European security and views on Russia for two decades have been really stunned by. Um, but I think the sort of visceral historical uh, reaction, seeing what's happening in Ukraine reminds them of their own family experiences in World War II. And that has really mobilized voters and the public to help Ukrainians to fund the war. It's a really phenomenal thing to see. And the risks for us of doing nothing are not just that Ukraine dies, and then we have to go back to trying to find some way to talk to Putin again. It is, this will fracture NATO. Like if Ukraine dies, uh, the fractures in the alliance between the people who understood what this was going to mean and those who didn't want to do enough will be almost unbearable. It mm. will have serious consequences across Europe. It will have serious consequences for us. Like does the Biden administration really imagine they're gonna do part two of their democracy summit later this year, having watched Ukraine get slaughtered oh. by Russia? I mean, who's the lead speaker of that conference? It's just, I mean, everything that we care about is this. This is the battle. This is where you fight it. We're so fucking lucky that 20 million Ukrainians wanna do it for us. So we don't have to do it. They're just asking us to give them things so they can do it for us. And I don't know why there's such unwillingness to look at this and be like, this is a fucking risk we have to take. Yeah. Because we're never going to get this chance again. This is this only chance. It will never exist again. I heard a former member of, of Congress, who's a former Republican member of Congress, say yesterday, you know, we have to really, he was trying to convey, we have to keep thinking about what the frames are here. But but basically said, you know, NATO was is is now being misused here. NATO, we created NATO not to have an alliance of those countries, but to be the safeguard of democracy against authoritarians like Russia. And now NATO is being used as this kind of 
not a punching bag, but this sort of straw man in in essence that is actually now leading to to these horrible conflicts. And we as Americans have to get back to thinking about why do we have NATO in the first place, right? NATO is not like, oh, well, we can't go outside of the frame that has been decided about, you know, what NATO is and isn't. Like we have to think about what was the the reason that we had NATO in the first place. And when we get to that, I think it becomes much clearer to see what we should and should not be doing here. Yeah. An example of that for listeners, and Molly, you've mentioned this, um, Tuesday, the Pentagon rejected a proposal from Poland to transfer their Soviet-era fighter jets to the United States so that the United States could give them to Ukraine, right? We were going to play middleman. But Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said the proposal was not tenable and that the decision for Poland to transfer their planes to Ukraine was ultimately, quote, ultimately one for the Polish government. So he's basically saying you know, they can do it if they want, but we're not going to be the middleman because that might look like escalation and NATO doesn't want to escalate. Right. Like, so how should we be thinking about the possibility of the U S or NATO providing these warplanes to Ukraine and, and what is Biden weighing or what is he waiting for Molly? I think the, it is absolutely unconscionable not to do this part uh, is hard to not repeat over and over And yes, I hear all the, it's all escalation people. Oh yeah, I know. But like, look, here's the thing. Putin thinks everything is escalation. He already thinks NATO is a participant in the war. If he decides to do something against us, he will. Uh, It has nothing to do with what we do. This has been the history of the last 15 years. What we do does not determine what he does because mostly we are doing nothing. We are leaving empty space for him to attack. Um, And that is why we keep losing these engagements. Um, I think... Uh, we need to think the way that they do, which is to fudge the rules a bit, right? Uh, and But I think giving the fighter jets to Ukraine is essential to help with leveling um, the sort of fighting in the air domain where Russia will continue to just slaughter civilians. That's what it is. They're not targeting military targets. They're not trying to take out key you know, strategic sites. They are slaughtering civilians because this has worked for them everywhere else. Uh, to create a level of despair and terror in society that will make them stop fighting. Um, And uh, I think everybody should be really clear about what that is. But there's also a lot of other things we can do in terms of increasing their air defenses with different types of, uh, you know, missiles that we can provide with other types of drones. There's a lot that needs to go in there. I don't want to get you know, like, obviously, we're past it at this point. I really don't think it's worth getting bogged down in a no-fly zone or not. Uh, it's all, it all means war discussion, then fill the hole. What's the yes? Mm. Stop with the no. Mm. Tell me what's the yes to fill the hole. And I think this in particular is such a missed opportunity to give planes nobody wants to the people who actually know how to fly them and use them and clearly have been kicking Russian butt during the war, uh, but to re-equip them with what they need to continue to fight, which is all they're asking for, is to be able to protect their own people a little bit better from Russia slaughtering them. Um, This is easy for us to do. Obviously, Poland asked for us to be the the transfer partner on this because uh, Russia will not fight the United States for this, but they will come after smaller members. Um, That is why we are in NATO, that we provide this generous umbrella to everyone um, that makes it easier for all of us. Um, And I think, you know, there's just, there's going to continue to be this Anything we do is going to make it worse situation. You've even seen versions of the argument that are anything we do will make them all die faster. And it's like, you know what? It's actually not our decision 
to decide that because the Ukrainians have said they will fight this war until the till the end, until the last Ukrainian, right? So it's not our decision to fight or not fight the war. We just need to decide what we are doing to shape the outcome of that. And are we really just going to sit here and wait and see in a couple weeks if the financial measures are enough? Or are we going to try to stop people from dying now? Because waiting is effectively losing at this point. Every day this goes on, it gets harder. Uh, It gets harder to intervene with less resources to stop it. Um, and I think, you know, in the, in the Russian description of this, it's, it's called escalate to deescalate, which is you take, uh, you know, you take a military measure that is is such a high escalation that it, it creates the dynamic where no one wants to fight anymore. Um, and in this sense, I'm not saying we nuke something or whatever, but if you, if you, if you have a show of force, that is, if you do this, you are actually at war with NATO and that's what this will look like. Um, that has a significant effect. Everything we've done so far has been wrong. Pulling out all the foreigners, you know, all the NATO military personnel and embassy personnel from Ukraine was wrong. It made it more of an incentive for them to attack. Um, All of these things, we're still just backwards on how we look at this. And I don't understand why there are no voices dissenting from the do nothing is the right answer group within the White House, as far as we can tell. And fundamentally, part of how villains succeed is that they have a much higher pain tolerance than everyone else. And Vladimir Putin is willing to feel much more pain than we acknowledge. He's willing to feel much more pain and cause the Russian people to feel much more pain. And so the kind of sanctions that we've seen thus far cutting them off of financial systems, you know, cutting them off from, from other types of corporate services or businesses pulling out that just, that, that he likes that, right. That just takes him back to a kind of Soviet, Soviet era that we look at and think, Oh my God, how can you endure all this pain? But that's kind of the point. He is a person who can feel so much more pain. So yeah, I just want to jump in because then I need to, I need to dress, but, um, it's exactly right. The problem is like Putin is not feeling the pain. Like there's no pain for Putin. And for a man who idolizes Stalin, which was a man who killed, you know, 30 million Soviet citizens with his, mostly with his own campaigns of terror, starvation, purges, execution, uh, and and less so in World War II. um, This is not, you know, he doesn't care how many Russian conscripts die. It certainly doesn't give a shit about the Ukrainians. But on the Russian side of this also, there is a body count. Um, and it matters that that not be so high too. Uh, so I think that's really significant um, to understand. Uh, and I think you already see in the he doesn't give a fuck category, there was this rumor last week, you may remember about uh, how he was going to declare martial law. And the reaction to that was basically every middle-class and upper-middle-class Russian who could packed their car and drove across the fucking border as fast as they could for fear that they would be stuck in this crazed, warmongering hell state. And, um, you know, that's what Putin wanted. It was just like a campaign of, it was a giant psyop, you know, because you want these inconvenient people out of the way while you're cracking down in your country. Uh, Now there's less foreign press, there's less Russian press that are not, you know, totally captured. Uh, there are less of the people who have the ability uh, to to speak for Russia outside 
Uh, and all of that is convenient for Putin in, in what he is doing going forward. I think what we see from him is what we expect, and we still have no answer for it. And what we see from the Ukrainian side is tremendous bravery and tremendous courage and tremendous vision for what we can all be if we get through this together. And I really just hope that we take that opportunity that they are showing us instead of closing our eyes some more. Uh, the third part of my piece that you have plugged so generously, Ron, should be up uh, later today. I, I don't know what day or what the, time zone that qualifies in. Today's but Thursday. It will be up People soon, will hear this on Friday. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, it should be up by then. Okay. Uh, and it'll be the one that has recommendations about what can actually be done right now to help Ukraine. Excellent. So thank you again for allowing me to bloviate. And thank you guys. Sorry to jump out early and leave you with all the topics. <laughs> we appreciate your time, Molly. Thank you for hopping in and please be safe and we'll see you when you get back. Thank you guys. Talk soon. Bye. Okay. So Mike, uh, as we, all right, I want to, I want to pivot back to the oil ban and then there, there are domestic considerations here, but then there's also this, this like, uh, values versus interests tension that, that increasingly, and I will sort of get to this later on, that the American people and that corporations are beginning to wrestle with in the same way that foreign policy experts have had to wrestle with forever, right? But those tensions are now becoming so clear. I want to think about this in terms of the data as we approach the midterms. How are you going to be trying to sift through the data to understand what's important to voters. Taking the, the the polling on support for the oil ban as an example, if the impact continues into the summer and fall, as we, as, as we believe it is, and by the way, I just have to say, like, obviously, gas prices were going up already. They were already up before Ukraine. They were going to keep going up. Inflation was here, right? I actually think it's a pretty smart move for Biden to come out and say, yep, oil prices, Putin, that's why your gas pump is expensive because it's great deflection because it's not true, right? It's actually really great. Like very smart political move, nice move. Uh, anyway, as this impact continues, what are you going to be looking for to see if it's a liability for Democrats or an opportunity to win voters? And how can our listeners start to look at polling data like you do, like a strategist? Yeah, that's it's a great question. And again, it's, in many ways, it's kind of a segue or a, a chapter two from the conversation we had with Susan last week, right? Which is, do we focus on kind of the domestic situation or do we try to recast the frame in terms of, of blame, essentially, like you, you pointed out towards Russia and make this an international um, dynamic? I argued very strenuously and strongly for going to make this about an international dynamic where you can start to discuss your values and articulate what is at stake. And look, Susan was right. She's a brilliant thinker that that you know you you have to talk about bread and butter issues. And the polling at this moment shows that it is inflation in the economy that is the number one concern. She's absolutely correct. But again, this opportunity to start casting blame essentially and a focal point on what this what is causing a lot of this the truthiness of it of it we can explain you at least have a, a chance a better than 50 50 chance of winning one but two this conflict is not going to go away next tuesday it is going to last for many many months regardless of what happens if putin decides to wake up tomorrow and says okay this was a mistake i'm out there's still the destruction. There's still the loss of human life. There's still the bigger questions about who NATO is. And the reason why that is happening is this. There is a restructuring of the global order that is happening at this moment in time, and we're watching it literally minute by minute take shape. It has everything to do with corporations, our financial system, 
these alliances like NATO that we've set up and established in the post-world era to secure peace, the fight between authoritarianism and democracies is very real. This is the first conflict of this new century. And what happens in the next few years, months perhaps, is going to define what this century is going to be and what it's going to look like. That's essentially Molly's argument. And I don't want to speak for her. Read the piece. It's really phenomenal work. That's so good. And it's why why there is a moral imperative for us as Americans and, and I want people to really listen to what I'm saying. I don't, I don't mean it in the generic, oh, it's about free people and, and you know, dictatorship. And while that's true, America needs to a struggle to remind itself what it stands for. In the post-Cold War era from 1989, and let's remember the post-Cold War era, I would argue, is essentially over with the invasion of Ukraine. From 1989 to 2022, There was this era of hegemonic American power, of relative peacetime. Yes, we fought these wars in the Middle East, which are are lessons we need to learn from, but there has not been a struggle for our hegemony as a military power. And most importantly, there has not been a struggle for our own values. And what happens in a moment like that, when a people do not have to struggle or fight for who they are, it's what Francis Fukuyama argued in the end of history, they begin to turn on themselves. And if that doesn't describe America to a T, I don't know what does. We need to have a vision and a struggle for who we are. And I would argue that it's not just a loss if Putin wins, it's a loss if Ukraine wins and America sat on the sidelines, not just for freedom globally, but for America. We need to get our hands dirty and be involved in the struggle for freedom Even if we're not leading it, I would argue it would be great if we did and we should. But if we don't, we need to get into the fight for our own soul, for our own American identity, because there is a huge loss if we do not. It means that the American century will not continue to this next century. Very clearly, I believe that very strongly, believes that the shining city on a hill that is America is no longer America. It it moves to Eastern Europe. Goes to Ukraine. Ukraine's the shining city on the hill. Ukraine is the shining city on the hill. It's a rallying point for what freedom means for a freedom yearning people across the globe. And that struggle is so critical to our character. The contrast between people taking arms and making Molotov cocktails in downtown Kiev and freedom convoy truckers who are driving protesting about something they don't even know what they're protesting about anymore and calling themselves patriots could not be more distinct. And that's the reason is because there is no, there's a purposelessness right now in American history that did not exist prior to 1989. There was a clear, clear reason and rationale for America's need to exist. It was to be what Reagan said, that shining city on a hill. And so I know I got off the, (laughs) that's that Mike Madrid setup, right? But that's, that's, that, that is the political environment that Biden needs to create. He needs to take something, a domestic situation, a domestic problem. And remember when I was, obviously remember I'm, I'm older than both of you. When I was growing up, foreign policy prior to 1992 was always the top of mind polling issue. We were in the middle of the cold war. 
and we were looking for leaders that were going to hold the line and be strong against Russia. That was extremely important to us as Americans. After 1992, when Bill Clinton is elected, we turned, appropriately so, to focus on domestic issues. And you saw us working more internally. Very, very rarely, if ever in that time, has a, has a foreign or national or international um, situation been as a top of mind for voters. Desert Storm, of course, the other Iraq invasion, 9-11, those have come and gone, but they have been the exception, not the norm. We are moving into a space right now where the international order is realigning so quickly that international politics is once again going to become a dominant issue in the minds of voters. And the Biden administration has to start demonstrating American leadership and resolve in that regards, because that's what people are going to increasingly be looking for. There's also this this question of whether or not Americans know what a just war is anymore. And we can we can we can set that as a as a topic to come back to. Um, but, but I think the difference between the wars that you just talked about, which have been sort of anomalous over the last, uh, the last couple of decades, um, relative to the cold war, right. Is that they were complicated. This is not complicated. Like Ukraine, right. Is very much a just war. And we don't have a model in the zeitgeist right now for what that is, what that even means. What does it mean? What is a just war? What are the characteristics of a just war? Right. Mm-hmm. But back to oil, um, last weekend. A group of senior U.S. officials flew to Venezuela for the highest level U.S. visit there in more than five years. Huge oil producing country. The U.S. officials met with officials in the Maduro government about easing sanctions on Venezuelan oil exports as the administration prepped for the ban on Russian oil and gas. And for some context... For listeners, the Venezuelan president, Nicolas Maduro, is an authoritarian socialist, and he is Putin's biggest ally in South America. This week, Venezuela released two American prisoners, Gustavo Cardenas, an executive with Citgo, and Jorge Alberto Fernandez, who was arrested and accused of terrorism last year. Cardenas was one of the six wrongfully imprisoned oil executives known as the Citgo Six. And by wrongfully imprisoned, I mean they are effectively hostages of the Venezuelan government. And the five other executives of the Citgo Six are still being detained, as they have been since 2017. So I want to think about this in the framework that you just laid out and that Molly's discussed about this great moral quandary that we are in that we have not solved. How are you thinking about the potential of not necessarily the economics, right, of replacing Russian oil with Venezuelan oil, but the but the politics of it and the and the and the and the values of it. If we are really in this battle for uh, sort of democracy then what does it say about us if we're not cozying up to Venezuela because we want oil that we just decided not to take from Russia? I mean, there's 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 an inherent tension here. Um, and I would love to tease it out with you both. Lucy, do you want to lead off with that? Yeah, it doesn't say anything good. <laughs> uh, Venezuela is incredibly problematic. And we, we have so, I mean, in the kind of game of of authoritarian dictator whack-a-mole. There are so many to choose from, but it's easy to forget how full of bad actors Latin America is and how much we should be focused on on that, on those countries, um, not just Venezuela, Nicaragua, other countries, what is becoming a very bad regime in countries like Brazil. So, and and that is very nearby. And that is also a part of the world that has a lot of influence 
on other parts of the world that are very important to the U.S. as you get up to Central America and the Mexican border with the U.S. There's there's a lot there and it's very it's much closer to home than we sometimes realize. I think that one of the the problems domestically that is very troubling to me, and I alluded to this earlier, is the way that Democrats are on the defensive instead of on the offensive about the downstream implications of energy policy in this conflict. So, for example, there's been a lot of coverage this week of Peter Ducey of Fox News asking Jen Psaki about, well, would it make a difference if if the, you know, Keystone, if Keystone had were still under construction, right? Which is stupid for a lot of reasons that I'm sure listeners already know that would not increase supply. That's a pipeline, you know, starting in Alberta, going down like toward Mexico, or, you know, Nebraska, Gulf of Mexico kind of stuff. That is not going to solve our problems. And, and likewise, the Trump administration, which was like guns blazing for Keystone, it's, it's not like they made a lot of progress over. It's not like the difference between Biden suspending construction of Keystone last year and now is that we would have this extensive oil reserve that we don't have now. As you alluded that to, not the case. as you alluded to, Russian oil is a small percentage of our overall oil supply. A lot of this has to do with things to do with OPEC. We can see the way this is downstream of pandemic management of oil supply, not having a lot of need for demand. So seeing reserves go down there, this is a a really, really multifaceted issue. Completely agree with you that it is politically strategic to link this to Putin. But Democrats are missing the moment, and this really is echoing some of what we talked about with Molly, of of being the folks to grab American voters and say, this is wartime, right? We make sacrifices in wartime. American school children still learn in school about the things you do during wartime. You can stuff, (laughs) right? (laughs) You get supplies, you participate in local charity. And one of the things that we've seen in recent weeks is that Americans want to do something to be helpful in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Big time enthusiasm. And and I'm actually really struck by the number of regular people that I see who are telling me about how affected they feel sort of emotionally by this conflict. So Democrats have a moment. Americans, the, the audience is primed for it. Republicans, who are despicable, but we know that, have decided that they, in the kind of never let a crisis go to waste thing, that their position here will be to not only blame Biden, but to basically blame the clean energy crowd, uh, you know, concerns about climate crowd. That that whole constituency is to blame. And instead of responding, with Democrats, with facts like... Um, <laughs> the facts we've talked about here, (laughs) Democrats are being very defensive. And the way that they're posturing with Venezuela has only led, I think, to more defensiveness and questions about, is this hypocritical? If I were advising Democrats on messaging, I would tell them, I I would take this in two parts. One, we need a reset on what the realities are around energy. The reality is that everybody agrees we need to get off of fossil fuels. We actually have been doing a good job of that, and that 
way, way, way predates any of this conflict. So for instance, I looked this up this morning because I wanted to make sure I had the most updated information. About half of Americans live in a, live in an area where either the state where they live, 17 states plus D.C. and Puerto Rico, have already enacted laws or executive orders to be carbon-free in the next several decades. Or, and by the way, 46 public utilities, so big public utilities, have also themselves made a decision to be carbon-free. So half of us live in a place where we are either, we are well on our way to being carbon-free. That predates this conflict, right? And Democrats should be saying, we thank God, thank God we had the foresight to do that, right? No thanks to our Republican counterparts. Thank God we are doing that because this moment just underscores how important it is to not have reliance on foreign oil, period, right? Thank goodness. And by the way, our path toward energy independence is going so much better than we ever thought it would be. So for instance, between 2005 and 2020, we had 24% less demand for power than we thought. We're using about 80% more renewables than had been projected. You know, we are using like 70% less coal and oil in 2020 than we projected we would be in 2005. These are huge success stories, and it's thanks to Democrats, and it's no thanks to Republicans. And then you use that framework. And, and by the way, this is really important because primary races are happening. There, some of them happened last week, right? Some of them have already happened in states around the country, really like in a big way in about a month. Like early ballots are dropping in a matter of weeks in these states. And then the second part of that is, again, Democrats are the heroes here. No thanks to our sort of asshole Republican counterparts, excuse me. Then you say, still, we understand that right now we are in a moment where you may really be feeling pain and we are going to help you. And so we, Democrats in Congress and Democratic candidates who are hoping to be elected and whatever, we want to pass, uh, you know, a measure to provide some form of, uh, you know, alleviation for people who are low-income people who are driving to their jobs, have, you know, mouths to feed, whatever. Don't have the luxury of working remotely. Exactly. Who are impacted by this. And so you, single mom, you, low-income, lower-middle-class American, we are going to help you. It is going to be, you know, like a direct tax credit to you around energy, rising energy costs. And then you have suddenly repositioned yourself both as the hero in the long term and in the short term. So I know I've gone on a long no, time, no. but I just think we all have to be operating from the same. Those are the facts. Like yeah. Those are just the facts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Democrats are once again missing the opportunity here, in my opinion. And they're playing defense where the Republicans are successfully linking fossil fuels to some kind of patriotism 
When it just could not become, be more the opposite. Right. Okay, Mike, I want to know what you think about that. And also, we should probably, we don't do this enough, but for our listeners who think that we're just constantly harping on Democrats, right? (laughs) Well, we are. But but only because we want them to succeed. To win. Like, like, listen up. And like, we're we're in your corner here, right? Right. Uh, uh, So sometimes people write in and be like, why are you always like, you know, beating up Democrats? I'm like, no, this is, this is meant to be constructive because we're, we're trying to teach you to fight like Republicans. Anyway, Mike, (laughs) your thoughts. Well, look, I, I I mean, I was listening to Lucy and and she's exactly right. I mean, not just tactically, but this becomes a, 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 a political cudgel that uh, Democrats have always been on the defensive on. This is their chance to go on offense by saying, by, by showing strength in national security. Like it's commonsensical that there's a direct correlation between how much clean energy we're using and the fight uh, for democracy now, right? Like this is one of the best things you can do. It's not just for the planet and for the environment. It's now good government is, is, is you know, getting off of fossil fuels undermines Russia. It undermines the Saudis. It undermines Venezuela. It undermines yep. all of these bad forces which have been empowered the in the world. The Saudis, who, by the way, it, we need to mention, refused to talk to Biden this week. Yeah, like, yeah, we refused we, to take his calls. Yeah, and again, that's the geo. Look, I, I, I actually think that reaching out to Venezuela is is smart geopolitics because it's yep. not that I trust them, but it's because why are they taking our call? Well, it's because of money, and they're realizing that yeah. the Russians, the Russians, you know, economy is is tanked. So why would we not pick <laughs> Daddy, them up? Daddy Vlad is not going to be able to help us out pretty soon. Yeah. So, I mean, he, they're, they're desperate for money. And if, if we need to buy their oil in the short term, I think we ought to be doing it as a way to leverage both these political prisoners you were talking about, but to exert some sort of influence. While we are, and this is extremely important, what, what Lucy was saying, is don't miss the opportunity, right? Never let a yeah. crisis go to waste. To seize the opportunity to dramatically move the ball down the field on clean energy. Because you have an economic imperative, you have an environmental imperative, and now you have a national security imperative at a time when that is extremely heightened in the American consciousness. There's literally no reason politically, economically, defensively, or environmentally not to uh, hit the gas and go forward and move down. Sorry about that. And move (laughs) down the field as quickly as you can because that's... you could make more strides in clean energy in the next three years than we've made in the past 30. Yes. And I think it's worth, and we'll get into this a little bit in our, in our next segment, which we should move to, but like there's the, there's the corporate piece of this, right? Where corporations now increasingly can make changes on their own, make big uh, policy changes of their own that, that, that move the needle, especially on energy. So let's let's move to China uh, because we've been spending a lot of time talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how the U.S. and our European allies responded to Russia and their unjustified aggression. But I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about how China has responded since we know war in Ukraine is inherently connected with the health and future of democracy. I just want to think about how we ought to be reevaluating our relationship with China. And I mean, we, the royal we, right? On on Wednesday, Axios reported that Chinese state broadcaster CGTN is running ads on Facebook with pro-Russian talking points about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, targeting global users. Last week, Facebook's parent company, Meta, 
said it would ban ads from Russian state media, but it hasn't stopped other countries with close ties to Russia, like China, from pushing pro-Russia ads through their state media uh, channels. And back in 2020, Meta said it would block uh, state-controlled media outlets from advertising in the U.S., but that they would still be able to advertise in other countries. So basically everywhere except America, China is helping Russia with their PR war by running ads on Facebook. And like, while Meta's platforms like Facebook are blocked in China, China's state-sponsored media is a big spender on Facebook. Um, they have famously used Facebook ads to portray the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang as thriving, uh, despite the widely documented human rights abuses, for example. But in general, how are you thinking about the challenge of combating state-run misinformation campaigns on social media platforms, um, especially when you consider that advertisers, including state-run media organizations, are the real customers of platforms like Facebook, Lucy. Yeah, I I think it's a I think it's a real challenge. I see we're back to Facebook. We're back to Facebook. But Molly's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Molly when uh, we when you want a little deflection? <laughs> when we need her. Yeah. I think it's I think it's very challenging. And I, I do think, and this is happening domestically as well, it is really we are in a really new era in terms of transparency around around ads. Um, because we have much more of a sense of of who's buying and spending and what and when and where are they from. And so I think that the I, th I think that one of the things that's happening in this conflict in Ukraine that has been most interesting is how little, and we talked about a little bit about this uh in the last earlier when Molly was on, but how little information Russians themselves have about what is going on in Ukraine. And I, I saw a, a segment this week about uh, Ukrainians. I mean, we forget that in that conflict, there are a lot of Ukrainians who have Russian relatives and vice versa. And that when they're in contact with each other, and Russia has, of course, you know, basically tamped down access to almost any real news source, but that when they're in contact with each other, they their their Russian family members and counterparts are so sucked in by the disinformation that they can't even believe their own their own family members that what is happening is happening. They're saying that no, no, that this is like a psyop by Ukraine or by the West. And I mean, you see that in in within Russia, like there's a TikToker that I came across who's some person who has millions and millions of Russian followers who does these TikToks that are about how like the US calls Ukraine and you know sets up a psyop and this is so I mean the 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 level of misinformation is is vast and and I think that in the case of China when you look at where they're targeting some of this stuff they're targeting a lot of other countries right they're targeting Azerbaijan they're targeting Hong Kong and this is what we know about this particular area. We don't, we don't know about, we don't know about some of the other, the other operations that they are, that they are currently undertaking. And so I think that one of the things that we can start to think about is kind of like one of the biggest pieces of aid that the West can give in a conflict like this beyond weapons and emergency resources is helping folks on the ground in these places figure out how to break through that yeah. incredible layer of yeah. disinformation. Yeah. Um, Mike, some of the biggest brands in the world, like McDonald's and Starbucks and Coca-Cola, are suspending operations in Russia. 
Uh, McDonald's and Starbucks are closing their restaurants. Coca-Cola is suspending its operations. Uh, Pepsi is now pulling products from the country a little bit late, but uh, following Coke, we'll continue selling things like um, baby formula and baby food, citing humanitarian concerns. Uh, Yum Brands, which is the parent company of KFC and Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, is also suspending KFC-owned restaurants in Russia and is working to suspend all Pizza Hut restaurants in Russia. They all said that they were ending operations due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They're they're tying it directly to that. McDonald's uh, CEO said that their, quote, values mean we cannot ignore the needless human suffering unfolding in Ukraine, end quote. And we've talked about how important it is to articulate why we need decide with Ukraine what values we need to uphold. Um, It's a good thing that these companies are pulling out of Russia and trying to put pressure on Putin. But if they're concerned about the attacks against democracy or the human rights abuses that Russia is committing, how do they reconcile that with operating in China and and in other authoritarian places? Is this a a moment where the tides are going to shift in the way corporations make these kinds of decisions, do you think? It depends on us. And us, I mean, kind of the employee base and the consumer base of these corporations. Let me let me play the bullshit card here for a second on all these companies you you lay. Okay, they're, they're, they left because the ruble collapsed. <laughs> they, they left. They left because there's no money to be made. If if they mm. cared about their values, they would have pulled out even a week before, or two weeks before, or a month before, since everybody knew that this was coming. They left only when it was impossible to turn a profit. It was literally impossible let alone getting the supply chains for the products in there. So, you know, good good that they're gone. I, they would be closed anyway because there's no consumer base anymore and 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 employees aren't going to work for, you know, however many rubles an hour because it's not worth anything anymore. So there's no economy. I mean, Russia's economy is literally going back to basically a barter system at this point. So, you know, Starbucks doesn't operate in that. They're not going to trade coffee for a goat or something, right? They're just they're not going to do that. And so, look, and and that gets back to my answer, which is my hope is that if we push them towards in that direction, it begins to move and make corporations understand that hopefully democracies are a better business model than authoritarian regimes. But it is entirely dependent on us. And to me, this is one of the most fascinating shifts that is occurring globally because corporations play an extremely important part in this new order that is being established, the flow of capital is going to be increasingly important as this battle emerges and as the lines are drawn. Look, one of the key players that's looking at this is, is, is not just China, but, but Taiwan, right? They're all watching, one, how the world is going to react. I think everybody was surprised by the size of the coalition that has come together. But it, it, it's also extremely important that the West or the alliance that's pushing for a pro-democracy and a free Ukraine wins and wins decisively that protects taiwan for for probably a very long time if we don't if we don't engage and 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 russia wins a war of attrition it tells you know, it tells taiwan something but it also tells corporations something which is you know wait until the rubble's cleared and then as the economy or the currency comes back go back in i mean right the the I'm not of the opinion that these corporations that left after the economy just completely collapsed were doing something for an altruistic reason or a purpose. Of course, they're going to put that on their press release saying this is about a certain value system that we have. The truth is there's no money to be made and they were closing and leaving basically anyway. So, you know, I think I think 
I, I happen to believe that corporations can, and I do believe will be a very productive player in this coming or, or, or fight that has arrived, this, this battle in this new century. But I, I'm not going to suggest that they're all altruistic and forthright. And I yeah. think those that just yeah. left in the last week have got a lot of learning to do. And I hope that they do. Yeah. I mean, corporations, I, I tend to think that corporations, here I am, and I'm hacky free market girl over here. <laughs> I tend to think that corporations are one of our best guardrails against authoritarianism. Um, and I don't really matter. I, it, it does not really matter to me why they're motivated to be that way, but they wind up being that way because one, I mean, there's the, the, it's just, uh, like Russia in its current economic state is not good business. And two, uh, they, consumers in this era really care about companies being do-gooders. It's like the, especially younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, it's like the second most important thing they rank after like, what is the product, right? Like what, what it's like Crest or Colgate, what's the toothpaste like? What does it feel like? You know, when I brush my teeth, but also like, how are they treating their employees? What are they like as a company? And that's super powerful. And I think that in a way we've, we've seen that pop up in, in things like the, the Black Lives Matter moment in things like voting rights bills in state legislatures. And we'll continue to see that. I think that we haven't figured out how to harness that. And that that we is also um, kind of quite amalgus because it's who's harnessing it when and how do you take that? When do you engage? When do you find that right moment as, as consumers and voters and people paying attention to the news are on that sort of persuasion journey? How do you figure out how to capture it? And so that's evolving a lot. I'll say that for corporations, but I, I still think that. I think we should remember that uh, China and Russia are very, very different animals here. And so we talked a little bit about earlier about, you know, Putin's um, Stalin aspirations, right? I think, and if we go back to the the 90s and the kind of Clinton era, we can see one of the ways in which China is very different, which is that China is very capitalistic. And I think that the West made a bet about China that was essentially, and it turned out to mostly be wrong, which was um, all boats rise with um, the tides. And people in highly productive, market-oriented economies tend to be freer. They wind up having more access to information. They tend to be, um, they they rise up. And so actually, if, if we really support this burgeoning capital, a capitalist era in China, we're going to wind up with free people in China and, you know, sovereignty for Hong Kong, sovereignty for Taiwan. And that has turned out to not be such a great bet. But I do think that the the underlying hypothesis of that idea is showing up now and is true to some degree in, in thinking about what's going on with China in this conflict, which is that China, the living here. So in Russia, there's like, a, and I wish we still had Mali, but there's there's a cultural sense of real pride, uh, a, a, a type of nationalistic pride that is um, that is quite distinct from the pride of being of of the nationalistic pride in China, and it is a pride in China around you know we have nice things, 
we have this flourishing economy. And, and so that is the kind of, that is the kind of thing where China is not going to put itself in a position to jeopardize that. That has become really, really core in a way that it's just not in Russia. And, and so I think that, that, that we, we have to think about that frame and think about how different these two countries are as actors, because that should, for us, when we're just regular Americans thinking about how we can have an impact across the world in Ukraine, in that conflict more broadly, we should be thinking about how we can put pressure on American companies to, to really take a stand in terms of their presence in China to really kind of put pressure on the Chinese to get in line in this conflict. Now, again, the other thing that is quite different about China and Russia is that the Russian economy was never that meaningful for these companies in a way that the Chinese economy is. So it's very different. But but I do think that this is one of those issues where we really have to tease out the the distinctions between these these two regimes. Yeah. There's also, Mike, I think something, you know, one final thought here uh, that I'd love for you to opine on is the difference. Obviously, the big difference between Taiwan and Ukraine is the Ukrainians are white Christians. They're like us, right? I mean, us meaning like this is, there's, there's, there's something particularly ripe for identification between Americans and Ukrainians in that way. And that, I think, plays into the opportunity that we have, right? How do you see that? Well, there's no question that the way that, that the West has responded to this situation is, is markedly different than the way we were responding to situations in Syria when Russians did the same mm-hmm. thing. Uh, it's mm-hmm. clearly different than the conflicts in Yemen right now where thousands of people are dying and starving and equally or more horrific, if that's even a thing, way. Um, there's a relatability here. These are Slavs. These are, these are Christians. These are, these are white Christians. And, and, and it is on the, foot, the doorstep of Europe, too. I mean, I'm not trying to right. mitigate that. that. Yeah. That's a very right. real thing. But when you look at Poland, for example, and I had put this out earlier because it's something I thought was a, a point of pride, you know, Poland had accepted 700,000 Ukrainian refugees without a single refugee camp. It was all Poles yeah. opening up their homes. Uh, 700,000 within a week and a half and just saying, you know, come here, stranger, and, and, and you know, and, and stay in my home. But they were not doing that during the Syrian uh, uh, refugee crisis. They were not doing that when they were Middle Easterners. And they, they were not doing that when they were not Christians. So, you know, I mean, we have to, we, 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 it is important to keep that in context. It is important to be a reminder. I, I don't think we have the luxury right now, candidly, to kind of, right. to pass that sort of a, a judgment. It, it, no, no, I, yeah, I agree. I don't think we do, but, but it I think does, it's worth noting. It, it is definitely worth noting. It is also part of the geopolitical calculation and, and strategic consideration. Um, I do think at this moment in time, one of the big winners in all of this at the moment, at the moment, and this could change within a matter of days, uh, is Taiwan. Um, because, uh, and I think China and Russia were both incredibly surprised by the way the U- EU, you know, coalesced and, and 27 nations came together unanimously in support of this stuff and NATO reconstituting uh, its, its, its spine. Um, uh, that, that does have dramatic repercussions for, for China and, and what China's intentions are. Um, but having said that, it, it, depending on how this goes, um, if it's a long protracted you know, struggle, um, it may embolden them. We're just going to have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. 
And it's also one more, I just, it's also worth noting. I just like, I saw this headline, the New York times broke. It's huge. There have been, as all these people are fleeing Ukraine, as you know, refugees are, are filtering into neighboring countries. Uh, and as you said, like the Poles are opening their homes to 200,000 Ukrainians who were not living in Ukraine have moved back to the country to fight for that land. They, as, as everybody else is fleeing, over 200,000 Ukrainians have, have, have gone the other direction toward the fight, toward the fire. And I just think that's, there's to defend their country. And I just think that's, you know, goddamn inspiring. So, yeah. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week. Well, one gigantic story uh, <laughs> this week, <laughs> and hopefully we've, you know, tackled it from uh, a few angles anyway for you. Let's talk about what we're watching. Mike, what do you have for us? This is unfortunately all that I'm watching at the moment, this moment in time. Um, but there, there are so many different angles of it, I think, is probably the most intriguing. So I, I hate to be that person who's not watching anything else, but I, I have been just incredibly consumed by it. Um, I, I guess if there is one area of differences, I, I am closely watching what is happening in Taiwan, in Venezuela, uh, and with the Saudis. Because as I mentioned, this, it's not just a right-left shift here. It's not just an east-west shift. We are watching a, a complete reorientation of the global order. And it is important... I believe, and I'm I'm not an expert in this space, um, as certainly as much as many of your other guests are. But I I think it's probably fair to say that the the, the post Cold War era officially ended when the Russians invaded Ukraine, and we can now look back, even even this close to it, the time between 1989 when the wall fell in Berlin, and the rolling of tanks into Ukraine from Russia, and understand that period in American. And, and global history, um, where there was a, a hegemon, the, the mistakes that we made, the successes that we had, but we, 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 it's increasingly clear to me that this is not a Cold War, you know, part two. This is an entirely different framework. It's why I'm so excited to be, to be listening to Molly uh, McHugh's work and her writing. I think she's brilliant. I think she's the, 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 the best thinker in this space. Um, but as I, I guess maybe it's just what I always do in political campaigns, always have a plan B. I'm always, I'm looking at the Venezuelas. I'm looking at the Saudis. I'm looking at the Taiwans because those other players, those other actors are going to be as influential in the post Ukrainian order, uh, regardless of the outcome is as, as potentially anybody's going to be. There are pieces on the board that haven't moved yet. Yeah, and there yeah. th- that's that's what's going to be interesting to watch. It's why I think engaging Venezuela was actually very very smart. Um, it, it may or may not be. I don't know how it's going to play out. There's a lot of information we're not privy to, but there's an extraordinary game of three dimensional chess being played right now in the Situation Room in the Oval Office in in Brussels with with the, the EU and certainly um, in Eastern Europe that is going to have dramatic impacts uh, in Beijing, in Caracas, in you know in the Middle East. So it's, it's an exciting, scary, uh, anxious time to be alive. But this is exactly what I think the world felt like when I was a senior in high school in 89, when the wall fell. It's just nobody knew exactly what was going to happen. It was unfolding literally hour by hour, sometimes day by day. But there was this sense that the old world order was going to dramatically, dramatically change. And it's, 
like I said, it's an exciting time in human history. It's also a very anxiety-provoking time. But I am quite optimistic um, about what's going to happen. Uh, I think this actually helps our domestic situation with the internal politics Agreed. we've been having, fighting yeah. our own democratic you know, problems with authoritarians here. Um, as I mentioned, I think that this is going to be a global struggle that will be transnational. I think that's exactly what's kind of playing out. And um, I think uh, my, my, my sincere hope is that we do engage in this and get more hands-on than we have. We, we've been very snake-bitten as, as a global superpower, lone superpower, by getting entrenched in Afghanistan and, and in our wars in Iraq and in the Middle East. Uh, because there was no purpose uh, largely to them. They were they were tactical efforts that, look, America may need war. I mean, we, we should talk about that too at some point. Yeah. What is America well, without I mean, war? And when we don't have this, I know it. as jarring as that sounds to our listeners, like like we, we, just war. We, we need, I want to keep coming back to this. Just war is completely different from most of the military conflicts that Americans have watched America engage itself in yeah. through our lifetimes, right? How old is the oldest survivor of World War II right now? And how many stories from World War II are still being told? They're not, right? right. They're, we don't right. have uh, a model for that. We, it's not in the zeitgeist. Right. We don't. And this, and that's why what you, what is happening in Ukraine, what the Ukrainian people are showing us, is so powerful. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, also, this gives us an opportunity to look up from our fucking culture war quagmire. Right? Exactly. It just to 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 put all of that it, in. It could prevent in us from destroying ourselves. Yeah. 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 Lucy, <laughs> what are you watching? So this week, uh, the uh, Harris County. Uh, lead elections official resigned. Harris um, County, Texas. Okay. Harris County is the uh, is is where Houston is, and it's one of the largest counties in the country. It's the third largest county in the in the country. And last week, Texas had its primary election. It held its primary, and it was the first election that Texas has, had had since the passage of SB one, which was the. Um, uh, not so wonderful voting rights bill, <laughs> voter suppression bill that yeah. was passed by the Texas Republican legislature. Yep. So uh, by some by some estimates last week, up to something like a third. So that that bill to back up that bill SB one made it much much harder to vote absentee by mail in Texas. So um, you had to really 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 made it tougher to give a reason. You had to be like old, disabled, have some big reason. And it turned, and you also had to, to use a new system of a new ID system. So what ID you put, whether it's your social security number or your driver's license number, it turns out that this is a very convoluted system. Huh, you don't say. <laughs> and by some estimates, up to a third of absentee ballots were rejected. And, and under SB1, there are a couple of options, an elections administrator, uh, administrator in the lead up, you know, and, and ballots had gone out in February, can go back to the voters and say, you need to cure this. Or they can basically say, you've like, OK, well, we don't have time, you know, and, and they're overwhelmed and they're overwhelmed. And these are election administrators who are just trying to follow the new law. So anyway, it turns out that the people who are most upset about how this went um, are the the Harris County Republicans? Oh, interesting, <laughs> shocking. Who 
<laughs> so who are really upset that why? so why, many why of that? their voters <laughs> were not able to have their voices heard. <laughs> you mean you mean Republicans tend to vote by mail? Like, yeah. <laughs> old people. <laughs> old people. <laughs> so the elections administrator has resigned. Uh, a, it's in the it's tied up in the courts. A judge has now asked for DOJ to intervene in in Harris County. Um, but it's it's really one of our first signs of the ramifications of this leg- type of legislation and also the unintended consequences of this legislation. And and it's also important to note when we look at the Harris County episode, like everywhere, people who vote in primaries are high propensity voters. These are highly engaged voters who are much better informed than the general public, the general voting population in a general election, let alone people that we'd like to have vote who are not participating in voting. And so I think it's a story to watch because because it's only going to get worse. And we're going to see this in other states that have enacted these these voting changes ahead of primaries, as I mentioned earlier. There are a lot of primaries coming up. Um and you reap what you sow. We should also note for listeners that a third of absentee ballots is an insanely high number. Yeah. The the the, the normal rate is like 1%. 1%. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So according according to the county, they confirmed that they ended up rejecting 25 to 30% of absentee ballots in last week's election and prior to SB1, that number was give or take 1%. So yeah. that's like uh, maybe like a 30 yeah. fold increase. Yes. That's 30 insane. Yeah. Right. It's, it's okay. really not a valid election at that point. It's just, that's, no, that's, no, it's a breathtaking number. A 30, a third no, of that's, the ballot. You got to do a redo at that point. Yeah. It's not even a valid election. It's just, yeah, it's nonsense. It's a great, it's a great story. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. It's a really great story. And it's also make it like, uh, and it's a good look ahead because I wonder what that's going to, like other states are going to pay attention to that and figure out how to not have this, maybe rethink some of the other things that they're. We we hope, but a, a person who's a, a voting rights expert in, in Texas was explaining this. And basically in the new system, you know, the, these elections clerks are getting inundated with ballots, Right. So the idea was, you know, if there's a problem with your ID number and that's who knows what ID number it is, there's not clear instruction, you have to remember which ID number you registered with. That might have been decades ago. That could have been years ago. So the it's it's on the the county elections administrators to look and say, okay, we're going to send this back and tell the voter to fix it. But right before ballots start being counted, I mean, they're getting tons of these ballots. This is a huge county. And, and, and then, so basically then the county, it's up to the county to say to a voter, and this does not scale, basically, you can cancel your mail-in in ballot and come vote in person, which many of these people really may not be able to. Maybe they're already out of the country. Maybe they're on vacation. Maybe they're visiting their grandchildren. Maybe they're like homebound. There's usually or, a reason you vote by mail. Right. Yeah. Or you can come in person within this window of a few days before the election and fix it to fix it. It's like, this was obviously not going to work. It doesn't work for the voters, but it also doesn't work for the elections administrators who are strapped for time and resources. And so it, you know, again, Texas Republicans kind of, kind of got what what they deserved. Yeah. 
Okay, I have one uh, to, you know, I don't always bring a look ahead, but when I do. Uh, <laughs> bring a look ahead. <laughs> so as we have just spent this episode talking about the this great power conflict that we are going to watch unfold, uh, and the thrust of this is oil, right? And and the way money moves around the globe and uh, and using that as a weapon, I am watching increasingly... Uh, current alternative currency cryptocurrencies and the role that they're they're that they're playing in this dialogue and you know there there was some speculation when we inflicted uh sanctions on Russia that oh well Vladimir Putin's just going to use cryptocurrency to evade sanctions turns out that's not a thing it's not going to be a thing uh that is not a viable alternative path for him um however the Biden administration is 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 taking notice of the rise of cryptocurrencies and their sort of role that they are playing in our financial lives. And uh, and on Wednesday, sign an executive order that will require the federal government to examine the risks and benefits of cryptocurrencies. It's going to require federal agencies to take a a unified approach. This is like a whole of government uh, approach. Um, to regulation and oversight of digital assets. And they're going to focus on six key areas. This is all according to CNBC. Those six key areas are consumer investor protection, financial stability, illicit activity, U.S. competitiveness on a global stage, financial inclusion, responsible innovation, and the administration, this is where I want everybody's ears to perk up, pay attention. The administration also wants to explore a digital dollar. This is what you, this is when you hear the term CBDC, that means central bank digital currency. The central bank of the United States is the Federal Reserve. They're the ones who control the supply of money in the United States. They are studying and have been studying, and and the administration wants them to continue exploring what a United States digital dollar would look like, how it would behave. And I cannot, I want to ring all of the alarm bells like a pound on the table, you guys need to pay attention to this because if the United States decides to go this direction, and I really hope that in this study they realize what a, what you know how how dangerous this would be. If they decide to go down this road, um, it changes everything. And I don't just mean the privacy implications. A digital dollar. Let me be clear. This is what China has. They've just introduced it within the last couple of years. It is essentially their their money is now programmable. You, the, the government can turn it on and turn it off. They can set an expiration date. They can tell you what it can and can't be used for. They can track every penny you spend and on what you spend it. They can use that information to build a extremely accurate profile on you. And you, and they can now with, you know, in the age of machine learning, feed that into an algorithm to make all kinds of predictions about how you will behave in the future. I, and I'm only scratching the surface of the implications here. Lucy's nodding her head because she's a tech expert. So I, I, I just, uh, this has to get squashed at some point. I hope that they learn the right lessons when they begin studying this, but the right way to compete with China is not to do exactly what China is doing. Um, I know that there will be some people who will argue in favor of it when it comes to the way money moves around the globe and our ability to uh, sort of use our use the fact that the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. This gives us an a, a enormous set of tools now to, um, to 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 operate more effectively and more powerfully on the global financial stage. But I, I just pay attention. I'm marking this now. 
when you see CBDC, that means digital programmable money that the government controls and it's dangerous. You know, uh, to, to come full circle to Venezuela, I've I've gotten involved in in a lot of work in, in recent months with dissidents from around the world as part of some work I do. And it's really, really clear that dissidents in places like Venezuela really see cryptocurrency as a as a huge tool in their arsenal to begin to combat repressive regimes like a Maduro. And and in fact, I spoke to someone in Venezuela who sees that this is a great way to bring in money from the West to, you know, help them like buy phones for people to like on the ground doing important work to try to create uprisings against totalitarian authoritarian dictators. But at the point that cryptocurrency becomes overtaken by a national standard anywhere and becomes trackable, say, by the Venezuelan government or the Chinese government, whatever, insert whichever repressive regime of your pick, then that ceases to be a tool in the toolkit of of these dissidents and, in fact, just becomes another, another monitoring tool and another surveillance tool of authoritarians. And so I think sometimes it's easy. There are a lot of, there are a lot of, um, basic freedoms and, and that we take for granted in the U S but what the U S does on this is going to have a real downstream effect in terms of what other countries do. And, and also people in other countries do not have the same, the same, uh, freedom and ability to, to sort of feel, certain of the kind of the privacy of their movements as we take for granted here. We're going to keep coming back to this. I know I, I, I have been promising a series on uh, crypto and money. And Lucy, I know your mom is waiting yeah, for my, it. Hello. My mom is Hello, waiting Lucy's for the mom. crypto episode. Yeah, I know. It, it's going to be a bunch of them. Although, like, you know, if if you guys want to pitch in and uh, help us listeners uh, hire an extra producer, we would move a whole lot quicker. Uh, we are, we're, we're, we're doing as much as we can uh, with what we have. And I, I would love to move um, faster for you. Um but it's very much, it's very much coming. I promise. Lucy and Mike, before we go to the after party, AKA Politicology Plus, uh, where Mike, you're going to just light us up with what (laughs) strategists are missing about a huge shift in a major voting demographic. Um, Or not a voting demographic at all. Or not a voting demographic. You'll have to find out in Politicology Plus. Um, Where can people find you on the internet, Lucy? I'm at Lucy M. Caldwell on Twitter. Mike? Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. And we will link to Molly's newsletter in the show notes today. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>